Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this edition, what sort of war was Britain's armed forces equipped to fight in 1914 and how successfully did they adapt to the reality of the First World War? Professor Jeremy Black, whose books include The World at War, 1914 to 1945, and The Great War and the Making of the Modern World, talks to The Critic's deputy editor, Graham Stewart. Professor Black, in this podcast, we're not going to be um, looking at the entire course of the First World War and Britain's part in it. We're looking more at how the British army adapted to and was shaped by uh, the First World War, not just the British army, but the Royal Navy and the Royal Flying Corps, what became the RAF as well. So looking at all of Britain's armed forces. Um, That first encounter in August 1914, the Battle of Mons, when German forces were sweeping across Belgium, the Kaiser is reputed to have referred to the British Expeditionary Force as a contemptible little army. Was it? No, it wasn't. Uh, And the Kaiser was being rather foolish. I mean, what he was presumably thinking was that it was rather a small army. And he was also overly impressed by its failure in the early stages of the Boer War, uh, not sufficiently mindful of its uh, subsequent ability to um, win that conflict. Um, I mean, it in a sense is a reminiscent of Napoleon's attitude when he uh, referred to uh, Wellington as just a sepoy um, uh, general, by which he meant a general who was okay for India, but not okay for Europe, which was a, a gross underestimate of the difficulty of fighting in India. Indeed, uh, the Maharatas at the Battle of Assay in 1803 were a more formidable challenge to Wellington than the French were in any battle. Um, but, you know, I think the same thing could be said of the Kaiser. He both exaggerated the proficiency of the German army and uh, underplayed the uh, the um, the effectiveness of both the British and the French. Um, You've got to remember that although the British did play a role, for example, at Mons on the 23rd of August 1914, most of the fighting against the Germans uh, in uh, that campaign and crucially in the Battle of the Marne uh, was actually conducted by the larger uh, French force. Well, one of the main differences, obviously, between the British Expeditionary Force and the the great armies of France and Germany is that the latter two were uh, conscript uh, driven armies in the main and um, the British forces was a a small volunteer force. Um, How useful really could such a small force, however however professionally proficient uh, it, it was, how really useful could it be in the sort of theater of the Western Front where massive armies were limbering up to clash against one another. Well, you're absolutely correct. If you're looking at the ability to man a continuous front line between um, 
the Alps and the Channel, then uh, you did need a mass force. And you're absolutely right. Of course, it was not obvious prior to the war that that would be uh, the eventual need. Uh, and, and indeed, if you look at um, the Russo-Japanese War uh, a decade earlier in Manchuria, there had been trench warfare then there, but there had not been a front line of, of comparable scale to that which is to be on the Western Front. Um, and, you know, I mean, Britain in 1914 is fielding the, if fielding is the wrong word, the largest navy in the world. That obviously has implications in resource and manpower terms for the force that's going to be available in peacetime as an army. Well, uh, it's often said, uh, and I wonder how erroneously, that um, uh, there was an assumption that things would all be over by Christmas. Uh, I, I don't know whether actually that was a, you know, a broadly stated assumption or whether it, it's one of the kind of myths of the First World War. But was there a, a, was it grasped early on that the British Army sooner or later would have to scale up significantly beyond the initial six divisions that it, that it uh, brought into the theatre? Yes, I'm going back to your first point. It was widely anticipated that casualties would be very heavy, precisely because it was anticipated that casualties would be very heavy, and indeed because the war planning of all the powers was involved in manoeuvrist warfare and taking the offensive, it was therefore assumed that the war would be a short one. I mean, the, deple the depletion rate um, in the opening stages of the war was astonishingly high as it was in the last stage. Trench warfare, and this tends to be forgotten, was in many senses a desire to drive down the manpower costs of the conflict because obviously forces that were entrenched were not vulnerable to field artillery as those that had maneuvered in the early stages were. So as first, your first point, uh, yes, it was assumed it would be a short war, but it was also assumed it would be a very costly war. Um, as far as your second point is concerned, um, once the war uh, doesn't resolve itself in the first campaign, then it becomes clear that manpower needs, and indeed the needs for materiel, particularly artillery shells, but not just artillery shells, um, are going to be much greater. And that forces all the powers to think about how best to raise more men and more resources. Of course, in the case of Britain, already there had been uh, the uh, commencement of a uh, mass recruitment campaign of volunteers. And you could argue that um, volunteers were in some respects the most effective likely way uh, to raise motivated manpower and that conscription was not always the best way. Um, obviously, they raise a lot of volunteers. A lot of volunteers are available for new volunteers for the 1915 campaign. Um, those numbers, though, in turn are um, shall we say, compromised in part by the casualties of that year, but in part also because the war itself is broadening out. I mean, the British add, um, as a result of Turkey coming into the war, uh, a new campaigning uh, areas, for example, um, and they then obviously move first to limited conscription and then to fuller rate, fuller scale conscription. How quickly is there a, a, a turnover in creating raw recruits who 
walked in off Civvy Street into frontline soldiers. What, what would be the, the period of time in, in 1915, let us say, and, and did that get shorter as, as the war got on? Um, that's a slightly complicated thing because being deployed to France doesn't mean you're necessarily being deployed to the front line at once. Um, so I think training should be seen as being in several stages. And even if you're deployed into the front line at once, that does not mean you're necessarily taking part in campaigning. I think one of the points that needs to be borne in mind, I mean, I did a military history of the Great War. Uh, that's what I called it. And um, what struck me looking at some of the um, uh, battalion and regimental records is how many days uh, units in the front line were not under fire or indeed taking part in any particular uh, operations other than the standard ones of maintaining hygiene, you know, maintaining uh, um, uh, sort of uh, reconnaissance and all the rest of it. Um, so one's got to bear in mind that if by training you mean preparation for an assault, um, then it's generally months and months and months. If by training you mean uh, being deployed to France, then it's a shorter period. Um, and one has to really qualify this. I mean, in essence, um, the army in 1915 does not take part in anything like the scale activity that it's to see in 1916 uh, with the Somme offensive or 1917 with Third Ypres, Passchendaele, if you like. Um, and uh, even with those uh, operations, there are still many units which are not um, taking part in conflict in, as it were, busy parts of the front line. Uh, remember, one of the things I've already pointed out is a shortage of material. Now, one of the consequences of a shortage of material, particularly artillery shells, is that you do not spend your time on a quiet part of the front shelling each other. You do not spend your time, unless you've got an extremely gung-ho uh, local commander, uh, mounting raids on your opponent. Um, what you actually do is you conserve your forces and you use as little material as possible so that the, qui the quiet nature of the front is something that a lot of people do not really appreciate when they're thinking of, um, uh, of, of World War I. It's very different in the intensity of fighting to, for example, the Western Front from June the 6th, 1944, uh, until the close of the war uh, against Germany, um, in the sense that their conflict is, whilst not continuous, more continuous, and there is also more of a need to be prepared for um, opposing air attack. I see. Um, rotation was uh, an important part of keeping troops French. So not only it was. was it not the case that you know, troops even on the front line weren't necessarily engaged in fighting all the time. You know, there, there were quieter periods. Um, at any one time, what sort, I mean, how long would, would, a, would a, if there's such a thing as an average Tommy, an average Tommy spend um, uh, on, on the front line? How much time behind the lines? And, you know, how, how regular was, was the rotation? Well, rotation is much more easy in, on the Western Front than in a place like Gallipoli, for example. Um, in the Western Front, you might be on for several weeks and then off for a couple of weeks. Um, 
in Gallipoli uh, in 1915, you're under, uh, it's very difficult to be rotated. I mean, you can be rotated. You can go leave and go onto ships and go somewhere else. Um, and indeed some units did, um, but there isn't the depth of battlefield uh, or the depth of battle space that, that there is in France. Um, and what other elements need to be brought out? If you're looking at the conditions of troops in World War I for the British, uh, you need to remember that the food they are getting in rations is, while not always, um, shall we say, marvellous, nevertheless, it is ample. Um, and that, that again, is, is, uh, is good. And linked to that, um, as uh, another aspect of rotation, as uh, Robert Graves makes clear, is um, the sexual side of it, that uh, troops, when they are rotated out of the uh, front line, uh, have the opportunity to, uh, to, you know, to go to brothels, for example. And, and that, that, that was, um, it, these were licensed brothels or brothels that the, um, uh, uh, that, that the uh, high command just turned a blind eye to, or, or was it actively encouraged as a as a form of R and R for for the uh, for the soldiers? Well, I think um, both the latter cases. It's not something I studied when I wrote my book on uh, on World War One at all. Um, but as far as I understand it, um, it was licensed and necessarily so because the army was very. Um, concern to make sure that venereal disease did not become a significant problem affecting the uh, health and strength of its troops. So um, I think it's fair to say, and they, you know, the British were not unique in this. So I think it's fair to say that you're talking about an aspect of, if you like, um, uh, public health um, in, in, a, in a military context. Well, you mentioned earlier about the uh, Gallipoli, about the Dardanelles campaign. Um, I wonder if you could give a sense of the balance of British forces globally uh, during the course of the First World War. What, what sort of proportion or what sort of numbers are we talking about on the Western Front as distinct from being in, in India or Africa or uh, at other strategic points around the world? Right. As far as the home army is concerned, the Western Front is its principal military component, commitment. But remember, the British, you, you mentioned India, for example, um, the British Empire uh, does not have the same balance. In other words, the British uh, Indian Army, although there are Indian troops for a while on the Western Front, the British Indian Army's major field of commitment um, is uh, the Indian Ocean in the broadest sense. So that includes, for example, up the Red Sea to Egypt, uh, helping to protect the Suez Canal against Turkish attack. It includes the major military commitment to Mesopotamia, what we would call Iraq. Um, it includes operating against uh, the Germans uh, with the German base in China. Uh, it includes operating on a greater scale against the Germans in uh, East Africa, German East Africa, what we would now call um, Tanzania. 
So it very much depends upon what you're talking about. So again, if you're looking at the South Africans or the Australians or the New Zealanders, uh, they both, they in each case have military commitments, military presence on the Western Front. But I think it's fair to say that for the South Africans, the principal commitments are fighting the Germans in Southwest Africa and Germans in East Africa. For the Australians and the New Zealanders, uh, although again, they have significant commitments, are very important and are very, are very good soldiers on the Western Front. I think it's fair to say that uh, it's right that Gallipoli is remembered as a key military commitment for them. The Canadians, on the other hand, as in World War II, uh, put their principal military commitment um, on the Western Front, rather than, um, as it were, being more dispersed. I mean, I know Canadian soldiers served in West World, West World War II in Hong Kong, being captured by the Japanese, for example. But nevertheless, the prime Canadian commitment in World War II, as in World War I, uh, was on the Western Front. So it very much depends upon where you are looking as to what you would say um, are the major issues. And then on top of that, there was the actual pressure of development. So what do I mean by that? Uh, when there are crises elsewhere, there are calls for manpower, and that has to be matched by whatever is available. So for example, the crisis for Britain's ally Italy in 1917, the Austro-German Caporetto offensive, the fear that not only will the Italians be pushed back and suffer heavy casualties, as indeed happened, but that Italy might leave the war, in other words, become a second Russia, that leads to the dispatch of British and French and indeed American troops to northern Italy. And those British troops come preponderantly uh, from, as it were, the home army, in other words, the European army. Um, so the situation is, is one, again, I mean, if you're thinking about the 1917 um, uh, campaign into Palestine, which we would now call Israel, and the Gaza Strip, in fact, um, uh, a certain number of those units come from France. So there are, there are movements between fronts, and partly that reflects the degree of the sense of anxiety. And I'm, I've just been reading, actually, yesterday, a book on the supreme by an Australian scholar um, on the Supreme uh, War Council in um, uh, 1918, uh, the Allied Supreme War Council. And one of the points the author is making um, is the attempt to, as it were, direct what is increasingly being seen as a um, interdependent uh, military set of activities. Now, that, that faces a lot of problems because there is a drag factor. In other words, you sometimes get, um, shall we say, slightly naive, or you could put it more strongly like that, um, naive uh, commentators that say, well, why didn't they move, you know, troops shipping from A to B as if they could be readily moved on a kind of risk board. And the argument, the argue, answer is because there's a lot of friction in moving, in moving forces. And, you know, it has to be borne in mind that one of the, you know, I myself have got doubts about the extent to which 
the British were wise to send such large forces to the Western Front. But one of the points about having them in the Western Front is that the actual tail in terms of support, in terms of um, so, you know, the strain on moving supplies, on moving munitions, on moving the troops themselves is much smaller if you're talking about getting them across the channel uh, than if you're talking about, you know, a, a longer and possibly more, also more vulnerable um, commitment. To what extent were the British armed forces interdependent with their uh, principal allies, uh, France and um, Russia, um, thinking particularly of, of France, uh, obviously they had their sectors, but uh, was there you know, an attempt to avoid direct replication you know, for different specialisms, uh, or uh, was a much more integrated command uh, effective in, in um, ensuring that um, the different forces uh, supported one another rather than, than just repeating the same sort of things, or were, were the structures just completely divorced from one another? Um, well, they weren't completely divorced from one another, and we're talking about prior to the uh, formation here of the Supreme War Council. Um, but they are taking, they are full spectrum militaries uh, responsible for particular stages of the um, of the uh, of the Western Front. So they need to be full spectrum. Um, they are much more capable of supplying themselves than the Americans. When the Americans came over, and of course the Americans have got a, uh, a, a, far, um, a far longer supply line, the Americans are in part dependent on the French and the British. So the Americans in 1918 uh, were particularly dependent on the French for artillery and machine guns, and on the French and the British for tanks and for training in, in their use. Um, the Americans used uh, the, the, the British helmet, the Brodie helmet. Um, but no, there wasn't the same degree of interdependence between the British and the French. But on the other hand, there was a significant need um, uh, for on the part of each of them to make sure that the other didn't collapse. And when in uh, 1918, there is anxiety about whether the French line would hold, and the British themselves are under enormous pressure um, on their part of the front line. The British plan, they do have a plan in the event of the French collapsing, um, was that uh, the British would withdraw uh, to, to, uh, to Britain and they would wreck every single French harbor on the channel as far west as Cherbourg. Um, in order to lessen the chance of a German invasion. Um, so the, I mean, once you have a British military commitment in uh, on the Western Front, then the British are dependent on the French for the section of the front they hold. Equally, the French are dependent on the British. Um, the French alone would have found it very difficult to hold off the Germans. And this becomes increasingly the case because of the strain of French casualties in 1914 and 15, and also with Verdun 16, which is very high, which means that the British end up taking more of the Somme offensive than had initially been planned. And of course, in 1917, there are uncertainties over the morale of the French army. So the British end up 
being more committed on the Western Front than had originally been, uh, been anticipated. And did British planning take seriously uh, the possibility of a German invasion of the British mainland as a likely scenario or as a remote uh, possibility? Well, it's a remote possibility, but it's one that one has to be aware of. I mean, there are a number of questions. First of all, um, as German warships showed in initially with their uh, shelling of um, East Coast positions, um, there was the possibility of German warships approaching the East Coast, not least if German submarines uh, and fear of German submarines led to the British High Sea Fleet not being in the North Sea. So that's point number one. Point number two, there is the possibility if France falls and there isn't a negotiated peace between Britain and Germany, in other words, the scenario of 1940, there is the possibility that Germany might attempt to invade. Although there is a big strategic contrast in that in 1940, Germany had an alliance with the Soviet Union uh, and the Soviet, it would have suited the Soviet Union for the Germans to invade Britain, whereas Russia doesn't drop out of the war until 1918 in World War I, and it's only then that the Germans are able to fight a full one-front war, which obviously they're able to fight in 1939-1941. Um, so the strategic situation is different. In fact, I've got a book on strategy in World War II coming out, and I try and look at some of these questions. Um, practicality, uh, not really high. I mean, Germans lacked the equipment, doctrine and training for um, an amphibious invasion. The major German amphibious operations of World War I were the attacks on Russian islands, particularly Ozil in the Eastern Baltic. Uh, these were of a completely different scale and in the face of a far weaker naval opposition than anything that if they'd attacked Britain. So, and of course, in, in the terms of the German Navy, I mean, it's rather ironic here, just as the Luftwaffe in 1940 didn't really want an invasion of Britain, what they wanted was an opportunity of demonstrating that they could use air power in the shape of bombing to subjugate Britain and lead to its surrender. Um, so in, in, 90, in World War One, the German Navy uh, rather would have preferred to have the opportunity of demonstrating that it was strong enough to check if not defeat uh, the British Navy and to put enormous damage on Britain through uh, unrestricted submarine warfare and as they promised in 1917 thus bring the British to surrender rather again than seeing themselves as being obliged to support an invasion force and I think it's fair to say that the German army didn't really have any significant interest in mounting an invasion. Well let's talk a little bit more about the senior service, the, the, the Royal Navy. Um, at the outset of the war it's perhaps fair to say there was an assumption the, the Navy would uh, have the predominant role in the conflict. It was, of course, essential in securing the English Channel in order for the British expeditionary force to land safely um, uh, in, in France and Belgium. 
but uh, obviously it has a much wider role and as the war develops it is uh, vital in um, securing and defending supplies as well to keep uh, the war effort going uh, both at home and, and at the front. Um, how well uh, equipped and laid out was the Royal Navy to fight what might have been, wasn't as transpired, but what might have been a series of major uh, battleship to battleship classes uh, throughout the various different naval theatres of operations? Well, that's a fascinating question. As you may know, there are a whole host of studies of the Royal Navy in World War One, and in particular in its confrontations with the Germans, which most famously in battleship terms is the Battle of Jutland, in which I would say the best book is Andrew Gordon's The Rules of the Game, because what Gordon tries to do um, is to link um, the, as it were, command culture of the British Navy, I would say rather command cultures, because there's more than one, um, with what actually happens at Jutland. And I think he does that fairly well. Um, but to go back to your question, yes, there were uh, clashes with the German Navy uh, surface shipping um, in more than just in the North Sea, but in practical terms, once the uh, the Battle of the Falkland Islands is over, um, the uh, these are really clashes with individual uh, German uh, warships, uh, rather as indeed um, was the general pattern um, in, in much of the world in World War II, rather than fleet actions. I mean, it's interesting here, the British, in a sense, um, were, they had the strategic initiative, if you like, as you correctly say, the Navy is responsible for maintaining the security of home waters, for maintaining supply routes, uh, to the British Army in France for maintaining the supply routes to the British Isles and for maintaining the alignment and protection of the alignment of the British Empire. But in terms of naval clashes at sea, it's in a sense the Germans that have the initiative. They keep a fleet in being. Um, once it's The British can't force that fleet in being to conflict. There isn't uh, the fleet, the German fleet in being is protected by defense and depth, including extensive minefields in the southern, southeast and North Sea, particularly around Heligoland, the British fear, correct fear, that uh, in, uh, in these waters they would also risk their surface shipping at the hands of German, in particular motor torpedo boats. So the British have a kind of distant blockade and there's no real, I mean there is towards the end of the war, uh, it's starting to improve. But until that stage, there is no real capability of using to strategic or even operational effect uh, air power against naval bases, as is to be attempted uh, with some success in World War II. I mean, most famously, the British raid on Palanto, for example. Now, what this means is the British are dependent upon the Germans. The Germans, on the other hand, this is quite interesting, the Kaiser is reluctant to compromise his naval strength by um, sort of fighting a battle and then losing it. And I think 
um, what that means is that it's difficult for the British to demonstrate their strength. I mean, what's interesting is Napoleon uh, provides the British with the opportunities, particularly at the Battle of the Nile in 1798 and the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. He provides these opportunities partly because he doesn't understand the limitations of naval power and he doesn't understand the significance of losing major naval units. Whereas in contrast, the Kaiser does. I mean, the Kaiser has lots of limitations. I am no fan of the Kaiser, but I think he has a better understanding that if he has the, his navy, I mean, you know, obviously the famous remark about Jellicoe could have lost the war in an afternoon. Well, equally, the Kaiser could lose the German navy in an afternoon, and he is reluctant to do so, which is why after Jutland, I mean, I itemise these in my book on naval history since 1860. Uh, but after Jutland, there is an enormous reluctance on the German part to, uh, to risk their surface shipping, and, um, you know, the Kaiser says the spell of Trafalgar had been broken. He gives an announcement at Wilhelmshaven on the uh, 5th of June, 1916. But I mean, thereafter, um, the German high sea fleet only sails beyond the defensive um, minefields of the Heligoland Bight on three occasions. So in effect, the fleet has been taken out of the operational equation, though it's still there in the strategic equation as forcing the British to counter it. But if you want to then look at that another way around, because strategy requires intelligence, not the glibness of what you often see, uh, look at it another way around. The British have the warships to spare. I mean, one of the interesting things about the war is that the naval balance moves towards the British, partly because uh, the British are launching more um, uh, warships than the Germans are during uh, World War I, uh, and partly because America, which is the third largest navy in the world, comes in on the uh, British side in 1917, while Italy has come in on, which has a navy of some significance, which affects the situation in the Mediterranean, has come in in 1915. So, and of course, there's no equivalent to the distraction that is to be in World War II with the Japanese on the other side, instead of which the Japanese are on the British side. So the British are, if anything, stronger. Yes, it is true that some surface ships, by which I mean war surface ships, I'm not talking about merchantmen where many are lost, some surface shipping is lost to German submarines, but not enough to, to alter the naval balance in surface shipping. So the British have the numbers to cope with the German reality of having a fleet in being. And that negates that strategic situation or capability of the Germans. Mm. But would, would it be a, a fair um, summary to say that with their more limited resources, the, the German strategy made, made the most of their position in, in, in neutering a lot of that Royal Navy advantage. You know, the Royal Navy wasn't able to um, bear down its great um, um, numeric advantage that, 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 it should, that, that it did have on paper. Well, that again is an interesting question. Depends what you anticipate it should have done. I mean, and again, and the comparison is there and interestingly there with the um, 
with the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, the last May, I mean, there are smaller successes afterwards, the Battle of Lisa, for example, but the last, um, and uh, Basque Roads, but the last major British naval, really large scale British naval victory over Napoleon is 1805. Um, the last um, significant clashes are 1811. Um, that doesn't mean that Napoleon is defeated. So again, the, you know, it's a question of what one expects the British to have done in, um, uh, in, uh, uh, in World War I in this respect. The Navy acts in order to uh, put enormous pressure on the German system through blockade. Um, it acts to protect uh, British trade against German um, commerce raiding, first from surface ships, then from submarines. It could probably have done better. Possibly it should have introduced convoys earlier. I don't doubt that. But, you know, it, it does act in this fashion. And the, um, the most important facts were that the uh, um, American resources, and indeed Canadian resources as well, and American troops are successfully brought across the Atlantic. So that although they are serious, the German uh, submarine attacks are ultimately strategically totally ineffective. Um, and the British can bear the protection cost of maintaining the naval strength necessary to protect their naval and maritime position. Um, could the Germans have done better? Possibly. I mean, as in World War II, there is the argument that they should have shifted earlier to submarines, although the capability of submarines prior to the latter stages of World War II are not as great uh, as they subsequently can be thought of. In World War I, submarines in particular carried very few torpedoes. Um, and having to surface to, uh, to destroy shipping with artillery pieces leads, leaves the um, submarines quite vulnerable. So there's that argument. Should the Germans have gone out in a sort of, um, as it were, a, a victory or death ride earlier than they than you know the attempt made at the very end of World War One? Well, possibly so, but they would just possibly have had their fleet sunk in those circumstances. They were up against the largest navy in the world, and that did the British Navy, and that did mean that there were practical disadvantages for the Germans in in this uh, in this conflict. You mentioned uh, the use of um, unrestricted U-boat um, uh, submarine warfare. Uh, how significant was the Royal Navy's uh, economic blockade of Germany in strangling the supplies uh, into the German economy that, that ended up denting its ability to wage full total war? Well, I think it was quite uh, significant. I mean, I don't think that that is why the Germans lost. I mean, I think that that approach, you know, is very much you lose because of the home front, which obviously pleased a lot of historians of Germany who didn't know one end of a rifle from another. In other words, it's the interpretation of war, which argues that it's a struggle of, uh, of home fronts, when the reality was in 1918 that the German army was defeated on the Western Front. Its main battle army was defeat forces were defeated by the British, the French and their allies on the Western Front. That's absolutely crucial. That's what leads the German military 
uh, leadership to decide that they cannot fight on. And I think one has to be very wary of the interpretation that it was the blockade which led to Labour discontent, which led to Germany lose, leaving the war, which of course is Hitler's, was Hitler's position, uh, you know, the idea that the glorious army was stabbed in the back. Uh, I think this is a ludicrous proposition. The Germans were defeated um, in, in World War uh, World War One, just as they were defeated um, in the field in World War Two. But there is no doubt that the British naval blockade, like um, uh, British bombing and, and, and American bombing in World War II of German uh, factories did play a significant role in affecting the uh, integration of the German economy, its productive capability, and obviously did affect um, civilian morale to a certain extent. Um, so we turn really to um, innovation. We've, we've spoken in a previous podcast uh, about some of those innovations, particularly the development of the tank. And uh, listeners, um, if they go to the Critic website, can uh, listen again to uh, that particular podcast. But uh, another enormous innovation is the really the, the as far as the British are concerned, the, the creation of aerial warfare the development of the Royal Flying Corps, which later becomes the RAF. Um, the early stages is the perception is that aircraft are used for reconnaissance purposes. Um, to what extent did aerial warfare, as distinct from reconnaissance, actually become uh, a very significant factor in the waging of war? Well, again, that's an excellent question. The two were actually linked. The purpose of aerial warfare was really to drive the opponent's reconnaissance planes away from the front line and to protect your own reconnaissance planes so that they could photograph your opponent's front line. Because the point about reconnaissance is it was not primarily to see what was going on. The point about reconnaissance was to enable you to create an accurate plan of your opponent's front line so that you could use your heavy artillery to smash through. It's what um, I refer to, others have used the phrase as well, as the th uh, three-dimensional three warfare. So well-aimed, heavy, indirect artillery fire. In other words, fly, firing without being able to see your target requires accurate um, reconnaissance planes. I mean, I quote in my book, I've got it in front of me, The World at War, 1914-1945. Um, this comes from the 27th of December, 1914. The chief use of airplanes is to direct the fire of the artillery. Um, and I think that that, was go, that would go on being the case. Um, now, obviously, as you know, and um, as I've discussed in a number of works, um, the use of air power broadens out. Uh, you get, as you correctly say, uh, large scale clashes um, uh, between fighters. Uh, you get the improvement of synchronizing fire so that you get much more sophisticated use of machine gun fire, able to fire through the propellers, um, synchronized with the propellers. Uh, you get the use of air assault. And I mean, some of the planes are quite astonishing. The German Gotha Mark IV, which was bombing. Um, 
London from 1917. Um, it could fly for six hours. It had an effective range of 520 miles. It could carry 500 kilograms of bombs and it could fly up to four miles high, 21,000 feet. Um, you know, th these were very different specifications uh, to the uh, aircraft in 1914. Um, and you get improvements on the use of radio communications uh, with aircraft, so that aircraft itself uh, become more significant and more specialised. I mean, you're, you're seeing ground attack uh, being important by 1918. And the British the Royal Air Force um, is significant. I mean, on October the 7th, uh, 1918, that's near the end of the war, uh, Haig records being impressed by the uh, promise from the RAF that it could provide 300 aircraft practically at once to attack the Germans if required at a specific point on the Western Front. By then, the British have a frontline strength um, of about 2,600 planes. So, you know, that's a, that's, that's a, a reasonably high number. Um, although, of course, the rate of accident and casualties are quite high. Um, we're drawing towards a close, uh, sadly, but I, I, we've talked uh, a lot about men and material and, and strategy and innovation. We haven't yet spoken about the quality of leadership. Um, how would you assess the way in which the, uh, the generals and the admirals uh, and to the, um, the leaders of the RFC, uh, how did they, how successfully did they adapt to the rapidly changing war to ensure that the British forces were on the winning side in December, uh, in, in, excuse me, uh, on the winning side in November 1918? Um, well, to my mind, I mean, you know here that there has been an extensive debate about um, the British Army in World War One. you probably are aware that the specialists argue that the army was, uh, had become much more impressive by 1918, um, both in terms of its fighting effectiveness, in terms of its equipment, things like mortars, uh, and in terms of its command. And as you will know, most serious scholars view absolutely with hostility, the idea of, you know, lions led by donkeys or the, oh, what a lovely war approach. So it won't surprise you to know that um, I, I, you know, I would like to think that the specialists are correct. Um, I would argue that uh, the generals responded, as did the officer corps as a whole, responded with great um, skill and sophistication to the challenges of the warfare. I would also point out that officers who weren't up to it, as in World War II, tended to be removed, whereas one of the interesting characteristics of more modern systems is that this is, seems to be the less the case. I don't recall a single general being sacked for incompetence in the Iraq or Afghanistan imbroglios of the last two decades. So, but on the other hand, you know, if you weren't good enough, um, you were out in World War One. So I would say that the, the British did reasonably well. I mean, the cost in casualties was appalling. Uh, really, truly appalling. And I want to read, because I think it's a very powerful piece, um, from a letter uh, 
well, there goes the clock. <laughs> well, let me just wait till the, the uh, grandfather clock finishes. Um, this is from a letter uh, of a medical officer uh, to his fiancée, written in September 1915 during the Battle of Luce, that's on the Western Front. And I think it captures, or, you know, this is a, um, a letter which um, was lent me. It was by the uh, chap's uh, grandson, lent it to me. I lit a cigarette and tried to pretend I wasn't frightened to death. And just then a man ran by me with his arm nearly off. I was so afraid he would bleed to death that I lost my fear for a minute or two. And I followed him, stood in the trench and dressed him. That means, put, you know, dealing with his wounds. Lewis, my corporal, was cowering down by my side in a small scoop. I wouldn't let him come out, as I told him one of us was enough at a time, when suddenly a shell exploded on him and blew him to pieces, knocked me over and broke the leg of a stretcher bearer who was two yards further off than I was. I don't know why I wasn't killed. My nerve went and I would have bolted. Only I heard the poor beggar hit in the leg calling for me. So I groped my way to him and dressed him. I have never been so shaken found Lloyd of A Company. His servant had had one of his legs blown off. I got down and dressed him, how I don't know, and was absolutely, literally sick from shock. Then dressed two others, and then had a very stiff brandy. And then I'm afraid I broke down. Now, I feel that sometimes some of the people today making judgments harsh judgments on our uh, predecessors are quite frankly don't have the faintest idea what it was like. I think it was a war in which um, officers and men shared really a terrible uh, conflict. It was a war which I'm afraid to say modern attempts to extenuate are complete rubbish. The Germans uh, you know, caused that war on the West. And I think um, that is an important point that needs to be considered and remembered. And it's a war which it was regrettable that we had to fight it, but it was important we did, and it was important that we won. As such, it prefigured and anticipated World War II, and it was equally a moral struggle. Well, that's a resolute note to end on, Professor Jeremy Black taking us through the development of the British Armed Forces in the First World War. Thank you very much indeed. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.